This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And speaking of that, right now we have a listener's story from California. Alden Olmsted is a documentary filmmaker who recently released a film called 30 Bikes about his small business, Homestead Bikes, which in the early 1990s, Alden founded and then saw fold. Alden now shares with us the backstory of Homestead, BMX, and his life. Take it away, Alden. I mean, I was born in, in Northern California in Glen Ellen, born there with a, with a dad that had a crazy dream of keeping California a wild place. And less than a year from my birth, my dad was already kind of gone. So he was gone saving what would be his first state park that he saved. And the parts where it was harmful and hurtful to not have a dad was, you know, just the basics that everyone could relate to probably. I was in Cub Scouts and uh, I dropped out because I couldn't, I couldn't get any of the little badges because there wasn't anyone to take me fishing or do those things that were, that a dad was supposed to do. Uh, I didn't have anyone that was pushing me. So I became my own cheerleader. I became my own challenger. Uh, so that definitely shaped my childhood of, of being, you know, just feeling like I wasn't getting the full experience of, of being a kid. But having said that, the bike, the bike was it, man. The bike was my, was my ticket. And I don't know where it came from, but one day there was, there was a bike out front. I thought, wow, this is mine. My mom doesn't really know about it. My mom doesn't know how to fix it, but I know how to fix it. And I don't, I don't know everything, but I'm going to learn. And so, you know, at first I remember I had one tool. I think it might have been a crescent wrench, an adjustable wrench, and it, it served as a hammer and a wrench and anything and a pry bar. And then, you know, we got a screwdriver and then we had to get the hex, the Allen wrenches. And, and then my brother got a paper route. And then that was a big deal because they allowed me to be the, actually the youngest paper boy of the whole of the whole valley because my brother kind of vouched for me. So as at 10 years old, I would come home from school and load up the paper route. And I, you know, I just thought if they're, they're gonna pay me money to ride my bike, which I'm gonna be doing anyway. And then I get to use that money to buy new bike parts. I was like top of the world. So it was very autonomous and very confidence building for me when I, I was just a little tiny skinny kid that really needed a lot of confidence. At about age 15, 16, I was kind of feeling maybe what kids feel where you just start to think more like an adult or more of what's, what track of life am I on. And I, I went to summer camp and I met a group of friends that, that accepted me with all my quirks and flaws that had caused me to be kind of shy. At school, these, these kids welcomed me and we became lifelong friends to this day. So that, that meant that I was less involved at high school, more involved in, in church and youth camps. And, and I would become a camp counselor and later on run a BMX track actually at a summer camp. BMX stands for bicycle motocross. And quite simply, it's in the, in the 60s when motorcycle racing became more common and popular. Kids on, on their Schwinn bicycles 
you know, they couldn't afford a motorcycle, but they wanted to look like and ride like their motorcycle heroes. So they started to outfit their bikes with dirt fenders or, uh, you know, sturdier handlebars. They wanted what wasn't there from the market, so they created it themselves. And they started to ride in these downhill jumping sessions where where they would just go screaming down these dirt hills with like a little, you know, a one or two foot high jump and they would just launch 20 feet down the hill. The late 70s and the 80s were when companies started to realize they could make money off of us kids. And so I was right there in the in the heart of this new this new culture. And you know, I, like a lot of kids, I didn't question what was in front of me. So it never occurred to me that I wouldn't go to college. And uh, there was never, that was never a question. So I applied for the college that my brother was going to in, in Los Angeles, Biola University, a small college I had visited. I thought it seemed cool. I thought, you know, from a small town going to LA obviously seemed exciting. But being a September birthday, I was, when I got down to college, I was still only 17 years old. So coming from a town of six, 7,000 people to LA was, was a little bit of a culture shock. And then just the reality of, of sucking it up and, and working at college, you know, I was, I was studying to be a graphic designer and it wasn't until being down there that I started to question, am I really wanting to devote four years of my life to this? And um, I started looking back at some of the designs that I had done as a, as a late teenager and realized that, well, wait a second, I've already got these designs for a bike that I want to do. Well, shoot, I wonder, what, I wonder if I don't have to wait till the end of college. So on a complete, complete whim, at the beginning of the second semester of college, I wrote a letter to Bob Haro, who is kind of the Tony Hawk of, of BMX. He's the Steve Jobs of BMX, whatever whatever name you hold as the highest in your field. That's who Bob Harrow was. He invented the trick riding part of freestyle BMX and he writes back and he says his phone number in the letter and he says, uh, I really appreciated your letter, call me anytime. And I'm, oh my gosh, this is my mentor, this is my hero, right? So I call him up and we have a short conversation where he says, I don't wanna get any phone calls from you know angry mothers that I told you to drop out of college. But he said, yeah, college wasn't for me either. And, you know, as, a, as an impressionable kid needing, you know, guidance, maybe even just male, male guidance, Bob speaking to me and uh, validating what I was going through really just made me say, you know what, this is what I'm doing. He gave me a link of a bike company that I could, that I could uh, call, and I started kind of plotting my exit from college. And I told my mom, and obviously this was just not happy, not a good thing. But man, I, as an 18 year old, I was as defiant as I've ever been in my life. The excitement of starting my own BMX bike company was just, it was just too exciting. When he wrote me back that, I mean, that really was the catalyst. I'm not, I don't wanna, I don't wanna blame Bob Harrow on dropping out of college, but uh, it was, it was like a life preserver. It was like an arm reaching down into a life preserver, you know? And once I saw that it might be possible, Bob Harrow gave me a name of a, BMX company in Tennessee, and I called them up, and they said just real quick, wait, what do you want to do? You want to weld your own frame? Yeah, we do that for you, shoot. And it, you know, when you're kind of desperate and you get you get a yes, it's like, well, well shoot, then this is the time. And of course, looking back now, we can see the early 90s, the, we were just about to plunge into a recession. Um, 
we were kind of going into a, I would say, kind of a downer time for America. You can look at the music and the grunge and the, um, it was just a lot of things that pointed to, uh, you know, reality bites. Um, it was just not, I don't think it was a good time to start a small business, but those weren't the indicators I was looking at. I was so jacked up and fired up about getting into this world that I loved and not just being an outsider, but now being an insider, being being owning a company and starting the logos and, and designing the bike. And yeah, I, I, I still look back with a little bit of wonder that I did it, but I, I got on a plane by myself and I spent a couple days at the at the Cyclecraft factory in Tennessee and they told me, well, you have to design your own your own dropouts where the where the wheels slide into. And so I, you know, uh, in high school, I actually did uh, four years of drafting and that was one area where I actually excelled. I got I received a Bank of America award. So drawing the bike design was was no big deal. That was second nature. And that was it. I came home and I told my friends this, this thing is real. I'm starting a bike company. And, and growing up, there was always this sensitive thing with, with the last name of Olmstead. There were two parts of it. Part of it is that my dad, you know, there, there was, I, I definitely had some frustration with my dad. So maybe I wasn't ready to embrace the name Olmstead yet. And also I was sick of mis, people misspelling Olmstead with an A. So it was a, there was a practical and a, and a deeper reason. So I wanted to call my company Homestead. There's two ways that you can make a bike special, and unfortunately, I didn't have the biggest one. And the biggest one is if you are a, a pro rider, right? I mean, there's I think there's even Tony Hawk bicycles at Target, right? Well, Tony Hawk is not a biker, but you put the name Tony Hawk on and, and it will sell. So I wasn't a pro-level stunt rider to the point where my name was recognized, so I couldn't go the name route. So I had to make sure that my bike looked or operated in a different way. And so I knew that I wanted the bike to be stiffer, but I still wanted it to be really light. And I knew that I was tall, so I wanted it to be a little bit longer and leaner. But mainly what I wanted was something unique, uh, but very functional of a way to strengthen the, the frame. So when, you, when you're pedaling on a bike track, you really want every bit of power that you're pedaling, you want it to get to the ground. You want it to feel like a slingshot when you take off out of that gate. And so I sent Cyclecraft a page of sketches, which had like three different ideas of how I could light, lightly strengthen the rear triangle uh, where the wheel goes. And they chose option number two, and they sent me a prototype, and I put that bike together faster than I've ever put a bike together in my life. I mean, I thought, this is my bike. And then the paint design. The paint design made it very unique because chrome bikes were big at the time and painted bikes were big but Brian Foster the kid that picked me up at the airport was also painting Cyclecraft at the time and he was known for these wild paint designs and the funny thing is we find out later that Brian was colorblind uh, but at the time I didn't know and I, I, I named my bike after a lizard in South America that runs on the water so therefore I wanted the bike to look like the lizard and so we tried a couple different green colors the first one was not it was like a flat forest green that just didn't look good. But then the next one was like this, I don't know, it was like this metallic seafoam green that was just perfect of greenish bluish. And then these, if anyone remembers, this splatter paint was real big in the 90s. So you would paint the bike and then splatter it with this other color. So the lizard is a green lizard with blue specks. So the, the paint of the original homestead was bright, metallic blue-green with blue specks splattered by Brian Foster. And it was a cool, it was a really cool look. 
But basically, I just started selling them around my local area. So I'd walk into a bike shop with a frame and a fork and say, my name is Alden. Um, I made this bike. This is my new unique bike. And, uh, you know, will you would you consider selling it? I think the wholesale cost was like 140 or 150. And then the bikes would sell for 190. Keep in mind, I didn't I hadn't done this research before. But all of a sudden I realized, oh, shoot, you know, 50 bucks per bike is uh I mean, man, I got to sell a lot of bikes. And so I realized real quick that this was going to be tough to make any sort of amount of living or income. This was about building a brand. So then I get in my car and I drive down to L.A. to the BMX magazine. I showed up. I said, I got this new bike. And they said, dude, they said, you are perfect timing because we're just putting together our fall buyer's guide for new bikes. If you'll put one ad in the magazine at no extra charge, we'll include your new homestead bicycle in the buyer's guide. Within a few days, I started to get letters, man. I'm telling you from all over the world. I started to get fan mail, basically. It was kids wanting, when are, when are the bikes coming out? Uh, what, are the, what are the t-shirts look like? How much are the stickers? I started getting applications for kids, you know, wanting to be on the homestead bike team. And I'm like, well, I don't even have a team yet. I'm just a kid trying to sell stickers. I'm living at my mom's house. I just dropped out of college. I mean, this is crazy. I get letters from a mom in Czechoslovakia saying, uh, with broken English, you know, so glad am I that you're doing this. Uh, my, my boy um, is off of drugs and on BMX. And so glad am I that he's not one of the street kids. And BMX has been so meaningful. And you know, sending pictures of the kids on their bikes. And so uh, this was just a lot of fun. Realizing that the bikes weren't going to make enough money by themselves, I knew I had to start making some money other ways. And being a graphic designer, that's when I started getting more into the t-shirts. So I made stickers to sell and I started getting heavy into making t-shirts to sell. And I had a couple early designs uh, with the HB logo and... um and again, the front of the bikes to kind of go with the homegrown, the little bit of Wild West thing, the, even though it was a, a lizard painted bike, the, the logo was kind of like a branding iron, just a real simple HB uh, was my style for that, for the head tube and the head badge, they call it. And then I started getting into t-shirts because I needed a way to promote my bikes. And um, the, the one of the downsides and, you, you know, the BMX world wasn't my world at the time. I was my friends who loved, loved, loved what I was doing. Only a couple of them were bike riders because, again, it, it goes back to age. We were they were all now 20, 21, you know, starting to go to college or work and um, and we're getting out of the bike thing. So that was one of the things that hurt my company. But but at this point, I was still on the upswing. I was still going up and up and up. And I sponsored a kid and then I started, I would pay for the only enough money I had was to pay for his entry fees to the races. So we'd show up in Bakersfield or Vegas or Reno, uh, even Washington State, I think we drove all the way the heck up there. And I would show up and I would pay his race fees for the weekend because that was kind of the standard of what you were supposed to do as a, as a company owner. And then while he was racing, I would be... I'd be walking around with a, with one of my t-shirts, with a few other t-shirts to sell, with stickers and you know, that was pretty, that was a hard sell uh, with only one kid riding for me. And, you know, the other teams had like a tent where the kids were cool kids were hanging out and they all had their jerseys and their pants and they all said their team name on them. And I didn't have that. So 
you know, there, there, it was, I knew I was, I was the grassroots version of, of the BMX world at the time. The funny thing is, it's not that what I was doing wasn't working. It just, it wasn't scaling. They didn't send me the 30 bikes all at once. It, they sent me like a batch of five and then a batch of, I think, 10. And then, so each time they would send a batch, you know, I'm scrambling to sell, but I'm also wondering, well, shoot, maybe I should call them and just get all the bikes sent. And that was one of the the, the challenges that, that was my fault that led to the uh, the bikes going missing, I believe. We're in fall 93. The Homestead Bicycles is starting to show some cracks in the in the foundation. You know, part of it is I'm 21 at the time, 22, so I'm getting a little older than the, the peak age. But I, I, the one thing I'm not, I have a lot of faults, but I'm not, I'm not a poser. I will, I would rather try something and fail and at least say I tried than, than, you know, wear a t-shirt of something that I didn't participate in. So if I didn't care about that, I would never have met Ken Kingsley, who was the, the high point of Homestead because he owned a BMX, uh, a bike shop in the little Santa Cruz mountain town of, of Boulder Creek, uh, Ben or Ben Lomond. And he loved the bike. He couldn't believe that I made my own bike. This is so cool. These bikes are cool. We want to buy them for our whole team. We're going to need probably 10 of them. And we want our bike, the, 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 the Ben Lohman bike shop team to ride exclusively Homestead bikes. And I'm like, what? I mean, I called my friends back home. I said, dude, this is it. This is finally it. My, this is my chance. Homestead is going to go. I thought it was going to die, but now it's going to get a second life. And, and then I called Cyclecraft. Hey, um, you know, I know I probably shouldn't have waited this long, but I'm ready for my, I'm ready for my, my 20 more bikes that I paid for. Silence, nothing. I think it took two months to even get the owner on the phone. I would leave a message. I started to get kind of frustrated. Joe, hi, this is Alden. I really need to talk to you. Please give me a call. Please pick up the phone. Finally, I got him on the phone one time. I called at a different time and he said, yep, hello. I said, Joe, this is Alden. How's it going? Hey, Alden, how you doing? Um, well, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of not sure what's going on. I, I, I need these 20 bikes. You know, I paid for 50 bikes and I got 30. I, I got orders now. I need, need the rest of the bikes. And he said, well, you know, Alden, we sold the company. You got to take it up with the new owner. Well, what do you mean the new owner? He said, I'm retired. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I wasn't so much angry as just, you know, let down. So by about January of that next year, would have been 95, it was clear that this was not going to work out. One of my friends who's in the movie was on a phone call with him and he just said, he said, man, I wonder if it's just time to let it go. And I just got, it was like a, at first it was kind of like a gut punch. Man, I guess, yeah, maybe it is. And I, I just thought about it all day. And I woke up the next day, and I'll never forget, I woke up, and instead of a feeling of, of sickness or depression, I got a feeling of freedom. <laughs> and I realized, you know what? Probably is time to let it go. I, I wasn't trying to be too hard on myself, but, but the reality was, I think it was the real life was starting to just be too right in my face for me to ignore. Like I said, you know, my friends are, are graduating from college that I would have graduated from and they were looking for jobs and some of them were getting married. And, and I was, so I felt like I was now behind the curve of where I was supposed to be in life. 
and that resulted in in pretty rough times and it, the next right after homestead for the next about two and a half three years would be the lowest point of my whole life to this to this day this was when i started to reconnect with my dad with my father i didn't even call my dad i just i just got in my car and i just said you know what i don't think this is going to happen unless i just drive up and show up and so i did i i drove up to his house i had an address and it was off the beaten path of uh, eight miles west of Nevada City on this, you know, ten, turn left at this tree and then right at this oak tree and then take the gravel road towards the river. And um, I showed up and I said, hey, what's up, Dad? And he said, oh, great, Alden, what are you, you know, let's go on a hike. And, you know, we that was the beginning of our reconnection. And that reconnection lasted, you know, until he died. And that was that was how I was able to to reconnect with him, but it started at that darkest moment. I'm just thinking about it right now. I, I'm wondering if that was something internal that, uh, some survival thing that I that kicked in. That because everything else, I had nothing anywhere else in my life. That this was, that was the need that I went back to. But that was yeah. That the next two three years was was a big reality check for me. I had to own up to. Didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if how much how hard I had tried with Homestead. It didn't matter the good parts. The reality was I just had to own up to living in this world. You know, the reconnecting with my dad. It was a process. It was it was amazing, but it was a process. It took work. It it, it really did. I I would show up at his house and I I just would kind of close my eyes and say a little prayer and just go to myself like. If if he says anything that triggers you or something, just let it go. Just this is about this has got to happen because it's never going to happen unless I work at it. I don't know what got me into that space, but that's just what the mindset that I had. So it the reconnecting with my dad turned into a summertime adventure, and you know I tried to keep it light. So it turned into uh, visiting my dad almost every summer. And I would invite different friends and say, you got to come to this river I found. It's gorgeous. We'd get to inner tube and, and go swimming and snorkeling. And it's just beautiful. It's hot up there. And the river's so refreshing. And, and oh, by the way, we're going to see my dad. And my friends came with me and we started, uh, my dad would drive us in his truck to his favorite swimming spot. And, you know, sometimes he would, he would, he would, you know, clothes weren't his weren't his first option. So he'd go skinny dipping and my friends would be, you know, kind of raise their eyebrows. Well, do we have to take our clothes off? No, no, you can you keep your shorts on. My dad's just, you know, a back to the nature, John Muir kind of guy. So it really was a special time of, of starting to reconnect with him and of him being excited about, about what I was doing and about what he was working on. And we started to kind of just, I guess, the word is be, we'd started to be peers. We started to not be as much father and son, but we started to be peers. And maybe I'm again, I'm just thinking of this now. Maybe that's was our safest place. You know, I still there's still some pain there, but I started to realize, well, there is a bigger picture. You know, he built the first wheelchair nature trail in the whole United States. The tr first truly wild ADA approved wheelchair nature trail is the Independence Trail in Nevada City. And that was my dad built that during my teenage years, uh, when I was missing him the most, that's what he was doing. He was building a, a, a wheelchair trail for accessible to all. So when I started to learn about what he had done, you know, I still, there's still some pain there, but I started to realize, well, there is a bigger picture. 
you know, it's my dad wasn't off gallivanting with with different women. I mean, he did get remarried, but never had any other kids. It was it was all about the parks and the trails. And uh, maybe talking about father son stuff was tougher than talking about stuff that we both could relate to. And, you know, I started to respect the work that he did. And you've been listening to Alden Olmsted, his story. Great work on that by Monty. What a great father-son story in the end. Dad wasn't there. And by the way, there are all kinds of ways for dads to do harm to their kids. And one of them is to just put work over everything. But the son realized there was, there was a bigger picture, as he said. And he just went to visit his dad. He went to reconnect with him. Showed up at his father's house in Nevada City. Better not to talk about that father-son stuff. Why not just be father-son? And in the end, peers, friends. And that was the beginning of their reconnection, him showing up at the door. I keep picturing what my daughter would think if I skinny-dipped in front of all of her friends. But then again, Dad was, as he put it, a John Muir, back-to-nature kind of guy. And none of his pals thought a thing of it. And again, they started to be peers and friends. A great story about so much here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of, well, Bob McClellan. Bob is one of our favorite featured storytellers, and he brings us stories of love and loss, comic and tragic stories, and stories of success. Bob walks us through right now the lessons he learned and passed on to his kids over the years by simply walking through the Golden Gate National Cemetery in San Francisco. The Golden Gate National Cemetery lies 12 miles south of San Francisco and is home for 137,000 graves. Congress authorized construction of the facility in 1937 with the first interments in 1941. The cemetery was officially dedicated on Memorial Day, May 30, 1942. The California Attorney General Earl Warren, who later became the Chief Justice of the United States, and the leader of the legal battle for integration was the keynote speaker. It's a place I know real well. I grew up on the hill above the cemetery and probably pass by it every day. My friends and myself often walk through it on our way into town. At night, we would even jump the fence to see who was a real scaredy cat wandering around the graves. One night, while walking through the cemetery, I stepped on the soft grass of a new grave and as my shoes sank in the freshly dug soil, it felt like some corpse had just reached up and grabbed my ankle and was trying to pull me down. Boy, it would send me running through the graveyard as fast as I could go. 
On Memorial Day, the Boy Scouts and volunteers will place a small American flag in front of each tombstone. After they are done, the grounds would appear to come alive from the motion of the little flags waving in the wind. Over the years, I would take my children to place flags in front of the gravestones and afterwards walk to my father's gravesite. After paying our respects, we descended down the mound to walk through the grounds. Little did I realize that our journey through the grounds would take us down below the surface into the underworld of the dead and from them be given a revelation of the future. Memorial Day is a time to remember the past. I have lots of memories about my father and I share them with my kids when we visit them. But I also take time to point out how much we can learn about what it is to be an American and what this place can tell us about the future of our country. My father is buried on the mound upon which flies a giant American flag standing guard over the men and women who served it well. The facts of his life are chiseled across the face of the stone and each one contains a story about him and the world in which he lived. This stone, like his dog tags, gives you the essential facts of Robert Alden McClellan Sr., Master Sergeant, USMC, retired, World War II, Korea, born 10 November 1916, died 26 August 1986. The stone is a factual summary of him, without any life or color, but for a few moments, memory changes all of that. The fact that most defined him were the words World War II, a synonym for the Battle of Guadalcanal. As a Marine, he spent six months on that island fighting with malaria without help, supplies, or reinforcements. His date of birth is the 10th of November, which is the same day as the Marine Corps birthday, and for the 21 years he served in the Marines, it was the biggest event in our family. There is a cross on top of the stone, but my father was really not much of a Christian as he liked sin way too much to give it up for religion. But he did have a great capacity for faith. The object of his faith was the United States Marine Corps. When he was buried, I had them inscribe at the bottom of the stone the Marine Corps motto, Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. Standing there remembering my father's character reminded me of what it was about him that I loved so much. I pointed out to my children that memories aren't just about sentiment, conjuring up old feelings and images, but teachers of the greatness of the individual lying under the ground and all those around him. In this place, men and women are buried in this cemetery who fought and served this country from the Spanish-American War all the way through Afghanistan in so many places. They must have had a vision of the future for our country to be worth dying for and to protect it from harm. I found it simply inspirational and the urge to participate in something important welled up in my chest. Walking down from the mound to meander among the graves below, I pointed out a tombstone of a young Marine PFC. I said, see, his birthday's 1948 and his date of death is 1966. His campaign, Vietnam. Told him this Marine likely died in action somewhere in a jungle or a rice paddy in Southeast Asia at age 18. I too was born in 1948, and I remember when I went into the Marines. In spite of so many conflicting and confusing reasons whether or not to go, it, it just became something I had to do. I felt that failing to do so would always leave me feeling incomplete. My life needed something greater than the pursuit of personal gratification. I was only 17 when I enlisted. Uh, finally, I think I did so to prove something to myself. But why did this Marine go? 
He must have believed by going that he would help make the world a safer and freer place. Maybe it gave him a sense of purpose or pride. It certainly did me. What did he believe about his future that made him volunteer? Well, I don't know, but I guess at 18, he probably believed he would live forever. Sadly, though, he didn't. He was so young and so brave when he died. We visited some headstones which had a powdered blue flag in front of it, indicating that this person was a recipient of the Medal of Honor. The cemetery has 17 buried on its grounds. Standing before the gravestone, I would read from the brochure about the risk and sacrifice for others these recipients had taken. Reading this harrowing story about acting up with any regard for his personal safety gave me goosebumps. Many of the more famous military are buried here. Admiral Nimitz, for example, who was commander of all naval and marine forces in the Central Pacific, has the largest tombstone in the cemetery. But there are those two who are less famous or virtually unknown buried on these grounds. I took my boys over to a group of graves that contained the blasted and burnt remains of the dead from the Port Chicago explosion. The efforts of these African Americans contributed to the victory over Japan, but their deaths ignited great changes in America and furthered the cause of civil rights. Those great supply ships of Nimitz needed fuel and munitions to feed the ever-moving forces across the Pacific. Planes without bombs and Marines without bullets won't win a war. It was the supply ships that would make that possible. They would come up to the North Bay to fill up on fuel from the Shell refinery in Martinez and subsequently be loaded with bombs from the Naval Magazine Center at Port Chicago, just a little further up in the bay. Loading those dangerous explosives without adequate training and under abusive conditions was a job that was given to African Americans because they were not allowed to fight along with the military due to the segregation policy of the armed forces. On July 17, 1944, while loading bombs on a supply ship, loaded with fuel, a fire broke out causing the ship and all the rail cars with bombs to explode. The explosion was measured at Berkeley at 3.5 on the Richter scale, and the blast climbed to 12,000 feet, killing 320 and wounding 390 men, mostly all of whom were African American. After the explosion, 50 men refused to load ships and were convicted of mutiny. The outcry of the public was so great that they were given a retrial and found not guilty. The impact of this horrific disaster, coupled with the injustice of the trial, pushed the Navy into integrating its forces in 1945. Within a few years, all branches of the military discontinued segregation, which opened the door for someone like Colin Powell to become the first African-American general to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and eventually the Secretary of State. The unidentified remains of those men lie buried here under the name unknown. There is no birth date or rank, just a cross, date of death, and branch of service. They lie here simply anonymous, having no identity at all. With so many stories, irony is everywhere. One is to learn that there are Japanese American soldiers from World War II buried in these graves right across the street from the Tanferan racetrack where during the war those with Japanese ancestry were imprisoned in the stables as the enemy. Eventually, they were offered an opportunity to join an all-Japanese regiment to fight the Germans in Europe. Despite the expropriation of their freedom and property, 
these Japanese-American soldiers went on to become the most decorated unit in United States history. Wow, I asked, what drove these guys? Well, it's evident they saw themselves as Americans protecting this country for the future. We walked back up to the top of the mound to stand under the unfurled flag on the spot where a Navy bugler dressed in his whites blew taps at my father's funeral. Reflecting over our walk as we ascended, I felt imbued by the knowledge of the history buried here and realized this place is not just about the past, but of the future. Memorials not only bring the past back, but they provide a foundation upon which to stand to prepare for what is ahead. Standing under the flag, I looked over the thousands of graves to the future with the knowledge of who was here and what happened to them. This knowledge gives me a hopeful vision in the face of the challenging and uncertain future ahead. And it deeply ingrains in myself and my children an understanding of what it means to be an American. And now you know why Bob McClellan is a regular here on Our American Stories. 137,000 graves at the Golden Gate National Cemetery in San Francisco. And my goodness, the idea that Boy Scouts would place small flags in front of every gravestone in that park. What a great thing to do on Memorial Day. What a beautiful thing to do. And my goodness, what Bob said at the end, memorials don't just look back. They prepare a foundation upon which we can look ahead. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories as often as we can. How do we know who we are if we don't know who we've been? This is Our American Stories. Bob McClellan, his story, his father's story, so many soldiers' stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone who pursued and achieved excellence in two very different fields, but whose childhood might have seemed far from there. My dad was an Italian immigrant. He moved to this country when he was 11. Uh, he never finished eighth grade. He sold bananas and apples in the Bronx his entire life. You're listening to Joe Moglia, who was actually baptized with the name Giuseppe Hugo Moglia. Dad actually met Mom at the end of World War II, when, but he took a little bit of a furlough in Ireland. They did hit it off. Now... He came back, and he spent a year or so. He was a single guy, and he was dating. He had his fruit store to get that up and running again. And then I think at some point in time, and I think my grandma, who only spoke Italian, I think talked about this as well, you know, it's time to settle down, et cetera. And, you know, you got to have a good girl. <laughs> I think a good girl meant probably a virgin, but I'm not positive. And Dad wound up writing my mom and asked her to marry him. So now th- my, my mom clearly brings that to her parents, and her parents say, you know, Francis, sit down. And there's three things. First... The guy's Italian. Now, I don't think they thought that was a good thing. But you've got Giovanni Giuseppe Molia asking Francis Bridget McLarnon to travel across the ocean to be his bride. Okay. Not sure that's a good thing, the Italian piece of it. But secondly, he does own his own business. 
<laughs> he's an entrepreneur. Yeah, he had a little food stamp. And thirdly, in that Bronx Tale movie, that Mount Carmel Parish, one of the major streets is Park Avenue. But it's Park Avenue in the Bronx. It overlooks the railroad tracks. I mean, literally overlooks the railroad tracks. So go, go back to the discussion my grandparents are having with my mom. They said, you know, but he does own his own business. That's a good thing. But hey, did you, did, did you see the return address on his envelope? This guy lives on Park Avenue. You can't let this guy get away. So she winds up coming to this country. Now, I think to move in with my dad, but she moves in with my dad with her new, what's going to be her mother-in-law who doesn't speak English. Oh, by the way, two brothers and two sisters. So it wasn't exactly what she thought. And everybody's working during the day, so she's home alone with her, what's going to be her mother-in-law that doesn't speak English. And she tries to go for walks in areas where she doesn't know. And she looks out the window and views the railroad tracks. And after a while, she writes home and says, Mom, Dad, I have no idea why the Americans make such a big deal about Park Avenue. Now, one of those things that, when I learned a little bit more about this later on, I mean, up until through the 80s, Ireland was always a pretty depressed, they never really recovered, like from the potato famine. It was a difficult environment. And when I look back and I realize that piece of history and I put that together, I can realize what was the real reason why my grandparents would encourage their daughter to travel 3,000 miles, knowing they may never see her again, and my mom willing to do that. And I think it really was to come to the land of opportunity. My mom never finished 10th grade, so I have my father and my mother. Neither had an education. Uh, I was the oldest of five. Seven of us lived in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment in the Dightman Street section of New York City. It was a gang area at the time, and frankly, I was part of a gang from the time I was about 10. I started drinking when I was about 10. I did the different things I wasn't supposed to do back then. Including at his Catholic school. That was run by nuns. Every year we, we take a trip, get on bus and go to Rye Beach. And the guys decide that we're going to, you know, bring liquor there. You know, we're going to drink while we're out there. But they know that we're kind of troublemakers. And, you know, they know that we could maybe have issues. So... I was the guy that we pointed to give the bottles of booze to the girls. They were, they were going too, but they'd be on a separate bus. So they all said, yeah, they'd be happy to do this. So that morning, we're getting ready to leave. And for whatever reason, we're delayed. And we're just sitting there ready to go. And then the eighth grade girls nun came to the door with bottles of booze. <laughs> and comes to our nun. And my nun says, whose is this? Whose is this? Well, I'm looking like I'm trying to figure out, I'm thinking, well, how am I going to get out of this one? Because I knew this was a serious thing. Now, I was a good guy. I was a good guy, but, you know, I was I was also a street guy. And, you know, these are the things we used to do. So I go up and I, I, I say, they're not really mine. I'm really doing it for somebody else. And there was actually a guy, that, a good a Puerto Rican friend of mine, that got thrown out of the school and I was going to local public school. And I'm thinking, if I called him... I'm going to say that this was his, but I can't get to him. So bottom line is everybody takes off. And there were five or six of us that were in trouble. And I'm the only one now in the principal's office. So they all go to Wright Beach. And the nun calls my father. Now, my father didn't like leaving the store. And he never got a call that, you know, we were doing something bad. So he gets a call. He comes in. And I'm looking. I'm still going to try to come up with some excuse. It really wasn't mine. So he goes... <laughs> So he comes walking in and I'm crying. I mean, I was really, really upset. I knew, I knew I was in big trouble. I knew I kind of hurt everybody. And he comes in and my father actually stood up. He, Sister Mary Margaret, I think was the name of the principal, the head nun at the time, and said, uh, Sister, I am inclined to believe my son. 
Mr. Mr. Mowgli, he gave the bottle of booze to the girls. So he turned around to me and said, did you give the, did, did you give the liquor to the girls? And I said, uh, and I still, I'm still trying to wait because I'm trying to get in. This is really Tommy Rubino stuff, but I got to get a hold of Tommy Rubino before I can kind of be able to do that. And that's not easy to get done. So I go, yes. Bang! He gave me a, gave me a whack. I go across the, the principal's uh, desk. He takes me. I go to the store. He wouldn't even let me work that day. I'm sitting in the back of the store. It was just a horrible, horrible day. Now, for my mother that believed that I was the one she could count on, she trusted me, and for this to happen really broke her heart. And that devastated me. That really, truly devastated me. When my mom died, I gave her eulogy, and I remember saying that whatever ever I've ever achieved in my life, or whatever I will achieve, I remember acting like I was talking to my mom, and I remember looking up, like I'm looking at her mom, I said, Mom, because I wanted to make you proud. And you're listening to Joe Moglia, and I know that voice. I grew up not far from that part of the Bronx, Rye Beach. I know it, Orchard Beach. Spent many a day there and love the place. If you ever get a chance and you go to New York City, leave the city, go to the boroughs. That's the interesting part of New York, actually. It's where all the people live, the, the, the folks coming into the city and going back. Uh, it's just a beautiful place. When we come back more of this great story and my goodness you feel like you were in the principal's office with joe and my goodness he just couldn't lie to his dad the nun possibly dad no chance when we come back more of joe moglia's story here on our american story And we continue with our American stories and with Joe Moglia's story of growing up in a gang-ridden part of New York City. Two of my very best friends in grammar school that I was with every day got killed when I was a sophomore in high school. One died of a drug overdose. The other was killed by the police robbing a liquor store. The one thing I had never gotten involved with was drugs, so I would not have been with that guy. But the guy robbing a liquor store, had I not been playing high school football, I would have been with that guy. So that, 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 that was a little bit of a wake-up call that uh, you know, I ultimately have to take responsibility for what I'm going to do in my life. And, you know, there are whole different directions I can go, but the one thing I know I want to do is go to college. And my goal was to play football and baseball in college, and uh, my girlfriend winds up getting pregnant. So that kind of ends the sport part of that. And I still felt I had to go to college, but there's not going to be any money. There's not going to be a scholarship. And my dad was appreciative of the situation I was in, but he thought that the best thing I could do in terms of taking responsibility for my family would be to go just work full-time in the fruit store and not go to college. And I remember watching my dad from the time I was a kid. And my dad was one of those guys, the glass was always half empty. So his perspective was, you know, work with him in the fruit store and everything's going to work out okay. But he never enjoyed his life in the fruit store. And he worked six days a week, 13, 14 hours a day. And I think maybe if he enjoyed what he was doing, I probably would have been a little bit more open to that. But it was watching my dad that helped me determine that if I'm going to do anything with my life, it's got to be something that hopefully I'm reasonably good at, but I've got to really enjoy it and be passionate about it. And I didn't think I could do that if I didn't go to college. So my dad tells me, okay, think about this. So I go back to him in a day or two and tell my dad, you know, I, 
decided I want to go to college. He reminded me that we had no money. I said, I'll figure that out. And he said, son, you're making a big mistake. <laughs> Put this in perspective. I'm a teenager. I decided to go to college, and my father's telling me that's a mistake. So I wind up going to Fordham University. I have to support my wife, my daughter. I pay every dime in my education. My freshman year, I'm driving a yellow cab in the city. I'm driving a truck for the post office and working in my father's fruit store. And you may be shocked to hear this, but it wasn't the most fun a freshman ever had in the history of college freshmen. The one thing I didn't have in my life then was sports. So I went to Fordham Prep, All Boys Catholic High School in the Bronx, and I had a good career there. And they offered me a coaching job. So my sophomore, junior, senior year in college, I coached high school ball during the season, and in the offseason, I worked at my father's fruit store. I majored in economics, and my objective was to work on Wall Street, but I really, really loved the coaching, and I decided that if I could get a head high school football job upon graduating, I'd pursue a career in coaching. If not, I would try to go to Wall Street. Well, I probably applied to 100 schools, and at 22, I become the youngest head high school football coach in history state of Delaware. Again, I'm still only 22 years old, and I'm thinking, what is it? You know, what is it that's really driving me? You know, leave the only part of the country that I know, you know, the New York metropolitan area, and wind up going someplace else because I, I'm driven to the coach so so badly. But I was driven because I felt a tremendous amount of satisfaction from having an impact on the guys that I coached. Now, remember, I was just a teenager, 20, 21 years old, and these guys were very close to my age. But I loved doing that, and I got tremendous satisfaction from, I think, having an impact on them. So I, I kept thinking that it's got to be more than, than just football. I, I wrote up in my very first playbook with them, by the way, which still exists. I said, we're going to win. We're going to do all these things in football-wise. But we're going to have a program that's more than that. We're going to have a program... We're going to ask everybody to step up and be a man. Now, in explaining that, I make it clear, this is not some tough macho guy. This is a real man. is somebody that stands on their own two feet, takes responsibility for themselves, treats others with dignity and respect, and lives with the consequences of their actions. And I, I thought that that made a lot of sense to me. Take responsibility for yourself. Again, no excuses. You're going to live with the consequences of your actions. That's what a real man is. And then within that concept of manhood... There's a concept called spiritual soundness. I think most people really don't know who they are. We tend to be a composite of the perceptions of the people around us. So one of my players, for example, how he views his dad, his mom, his girlfriend, his teammate, his classmate, his teacher, his coach, whomever it might be, they're all a little bit different. And that's how we kind of put together our perception of who we are. But that's not really who we are. And going through an exercise where you try to figure that out, if you really know who you are, you have peace of mind. And the only thing I care about is that ultimately my loved ones and the people I care about or I wind up happy. And I think the chances of us winding up happy are much greater when we feel good about yourself. And that often is determined by what kind of decisions you make under stress. And if you really know who you are, the probability of you making better decisions under stress is far greater than what it would be without that. So that'd be the first piece of be a man. The second piece would be courage. Just literally have the guts to do what you believe is the right thing. And then the third one, which is probably the most profound, you know, is the concept of love. But it's not making love, it's the power of love. And I think most leaders lose sight of the fact they want to come across smart, they want to come across bright, they want to come across cool, whatever. But it's not about them, it's, it's about their people. And I really believe if your people really believe that you genuinely, genuinely care about them, you know, frankly, they'll follow you anywhere. And 
people behind you, you can accomplish far more than what others might be able to accomplish. So these would be the things that I, that I would talk about back then. And what happened probably a decade or so later, I was convinced that this was a differentiator and a competitive advantage, I think, in life, in business, etc. So again, we call it be a man, but only because yeah, I had all guys. And it's the same standard I raised my family on. And my first three kids were daughters. Now, there's a lot of, you can make a lot of excuses here. And it's easy to do. But, you know, the teacher really doesn't like me. Okay, it's an excuse. Uh, football coach, uh, the coach, the official made a bad call. So we're going to complain about it. In the business world, you know, the Federal Reserve is not aggressive enough. Uh, the administration is too conservative or too liberal. But every one of those subconsciously, not consciously, but subconsciously, you're letting yourself off the hook. And BAM never allows you to do that. Now, we didn't call it BAM then, but it was be a man. You fast forward to 1981, and I'm now the defensive coordinator at Dartmouth. So my first 16 years as a coach, I had five different jobs. For us, that meant four different moves. None of that was easy. And we had literally no money. You know, was that really the right decision to make at the time? Well, well, his wife, Kathy, didn't think so. She told him that if he took the Dartmouth job, she and the kids wouldn't be going with him. And Joe decided to move there anyway. And later... Kathy decided to move there, too. And we now have four kids, and we're in the middle of a football staff meeting, and the sheriff from town comes in and needs to see me. And I think there's a horrible accident or a death of the family. And he says, Coach, I'm sorry. He has me divorce papers. So I, I, get, I get asked a lot, how do you balance, you know, being really good at your job and, and your home life? And I think, first of all, if you pick, pick a career path that really turns you on, then the reality is I want to be the best. I truly want to be the best I can be in that. I, I, all right, but in order to do that, you really got to work hard. So you're getting home late. You don't get much free time. You're working on Sundays. And when you're doing those things and your son has a game, very often you're going to miss his game. Your daughter has some sort of a match. You're going to miss her match. Uh, there may be a birthday because you got to be recruiting. you got to be on the road. You're a business executive and you got to be out of the country. So I think in order to bring balance and bring happiness to that, I think who you are with, you got to make sure that, that partner believes similarly in terms of what you believe in. Now, if they don't buy in, that's where you have friction and there are issues. And part of that is the selection of your partner. Again, that's a spiritual science exercise. What do I really want? Who am I really? Is he or she going to be able to handle that? You know, that, that is one of the most important decisions somebody makes. Having a child is one of the most important decisions somebody makes. But too often, we don't really think about that. We don't really, really, really examine our conscience with regard to the person we're going to be partners with. And that's oftentimes why, at some point in time, they don't work out. But would I have not coached football? Would I have decided not to do that because it might have been easier, you know, on my family? Well, decades later, I could think back and maybe come up with a lot better ways to have thought that through. But the reality is, at that time, what I believe is the right thing was the right thing. And by the way, looking back on it, I do believe it was the right thing, and I would do that again. I think if I were wiser in terms of making decisions, maybe we would not have allowed ourselves to get into that situation. But the two things that I feel I really did fail at were my marriages. And you're listening to Joe Moglia and that blunt honesty, that authenticity, it comes right through. And all the things he did wrong, well, you're nodding your head because it sounds like, well, things people we know do wrong. And actually, it isn't even wrong. It just wasn't particularly thoughtful. At the time, the choices we make can have implications down the road, and we just didn't think it through. And again, all of us, that happens too. 
By the way, I love Fordham Prep and Fordham. I mean, I know these places well. My brother went to Fordham Law School, and that's in Manhattan, the law school. The campus in the Bronx is where a love story was made. It's one of the most beautiful campuses in the country. And while you're at the campus visiting, go to the Bronx Zoo. It's right around the corner. Uh, This is a beautiful and great part of the country, the Bronx. And Joe, my goodness, what a life growing up in in a tough neighborhood in New York City. Two buddies of his die, one from a drug overdose, another shot by a cop robbing a store. You can't make it up. And that would have been Joe, and he knows it, but for sports. When we come back, more of this unique American voice, a unique American story, a great New York story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Joe Moglia's story. After four moves from various coaching jobs, his wife, Kathy, had had enough, and she divorced him. Joe is now alone at Dartmouth, this New York City boy, in a cold, lonely spot in his life. So I can't afford to live independently and take care of four children and my wife, so I get permission to move into a storage room above the football offices. It wasn't very big, but I didn't worry about that too much. (laughs) The problem was, though, it had no heat, and this is New Hampshire. So I could see my breath in the wintertime, and ultimately I knew that some changes are going to have to happen here if my career is going to work out and if I'm going to be able to support myself and my family, etc. So I lived there for two years. So January 1984 is the year where Nebraska is upset by the University of Miami in the Orange Bowl. Tom Alvadati, their defensive coordinator, is pretty confident that in the next year or so he's going to go to the NFL. And they offered me a job where I come down and begin with the secondary, but I'm ultimately going to succeed Tom as defensive coordinator. Now, I'm going to go from defensive coordinator in the Ivy League to defensive coordinator of the National Championship, which is Miami in the 80s. And every one of those guys got major jobs. And my goal certainly was to be a head coach at a major, major school. I could not have had a better opportunity career-wise to be able to do that. The problem was, you know, especially back then, we didn't make much money. We work seven days a week during the season. It's about an 80-hour work week. We don't get a day off. Well, I'm going to live in Carl Gables. My kids are still going to live with their mom in New Hampshire. And I can't afford to fly back and forth. And the toughest career decision I've ever made, Alex, was turning down that job. Because it was the perfect job for me, but it told me my football career as a coach was coming to an end and I didn't believe I could do my job as a coach if I couldn't live up to my responsibility as a father. So then if I couldn't take that job, well, what other job would I ultimately be able to take? And then I did everything I could to try to hustle, get interviews on Wall Street and it wasn't like I knew anybody. It wasn't social media then. So this was like one phone call after another, one showing up and see if somebody would talk to me after another. And eventually Merrill Lynch gives me a job in their MBA training program. There are 26 of us in that program, 25 MBAs and one football coach. And everybody says, this football guy is never going to make it here. And yet in his job interview, Joe had the cojones to say, I'm going to be the number one salesman at Merrill Lynch. And the guy responded, well, that's good. And we want people to aspire to that. To which Joe responded, I don't think you understand me. I'm not going to try to do it. I am going to do it. And I couldn't spell bond. And I'm competing with literally the best MBAs for the top 10 MBA programs in the nation. But a few years later, most of those MBAs were working for me. And he did become 
the number one salesman. So I'm at Merrill Lynch 17 years, and this is the 90s, and you had the dot-com boom, and then the dot-com bubble bursts. And firms like Ameritrade were going out of business. Anything with dot-com after pretty much going out of business, they asked me if, if I'm interested in the job. I wind up taking it, and I wind up moving from New York City to Omaha, Nebraska, where we're headquartered. You fast forward a little bit. Three of my kids had moved to Brooklyn, and 9-11 hits. So I'm pretty good. Bam, Moshe, you take responsibility. Focus on the stuff that you can have an impact on. Don't focus a lot of attention on stuff that you have no impact on at all. Well, I'm worried about my family, my loved ones. I spent the last 17 years of my life there, but there's nothing I could do about that. And I got to make sure our employees are safe, our clients' assets are safe, so we go into emergency mode. Later that morning, I got a call from my daughter, Kim, who said, Dad, I'm sure you know, you're know you incredibly tied up and busy now, but I talked to Kara. She's in Jersey City. She's shaking up, but she's okay. But the last time anybody saw Kevin, he went over to the site to see if he could help. Have you heard from Kevin? And I said, no, Kim. Now, the realization came over me that the, both towers had collapsed. There was a pretty good chance I may have lost my son. And as scary as that may have been or as painful or it, it was weird, it was weird because I try not to like, until I know something, I try not to overthink it. But I felt there was a pretty good chance that Kevin was gone. And the one thing where I had peace is that there was not one thing, not one thing, that I would have wanted to try to teach Kevin, tell Kevin, I love him, or uh, principles behind BAM, whatever it might be. There wasn't one thing that I wanted to tell him that I hadn't told him already. And that kind of gave me a peace of mind. And thankfully, Kevin and Ameritrade not only survived, but thrived. I just couldn't be prouder of what we ultimately did there. So in 2008, we got it right. We didn't do what other people did. Our performance, we still had record years. And even with the 2008 disaster, our shareholders those last few years enjoyed a 500% return, which outperformed every financial firm in the world. And I'm really pretty proud of that. Now, if that had been a college football team, it would have been like we won two BCS national championships in a row. But not like Alabama winning those championships. It would have been like Wake Forest winning those championships. So what would happen to the head coach of Wake Forest if he won two BCS national championships in a row? He'd get any job he wanted. That's actually the position that I was in at the time. So I stepped down. But I didn't step down to just take another job. And I've been working hard since I was 10 years old. So I wanted to kind of think through things. And then I get a call from a group of alumni at Yale. Led by Charlie Johnson of Franklin Templeton. So Charlie calls me and tells me that, you know, at the end of the 2008 season, that there was a chance the football job would be open. Would I be interested? And I remember saying, Charlie, I said, I haven't coached for over 20 years. And he said, Joe, I know that. But, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at the skill sets a head college coach is supposed to have. And by the way, we not only think you have those, we think you have competitive advantages. There's only one problem. I said, what's that? Well, in 140 years of college football, nothing like this has ever happened. No one successfully got him back into the coaching game after being away for decades. And it's going to take a really special president to make that type of decision. But think about it. And I said I, I would, and I did. And after a few months, I decided that I was going to go back to football. Now, most people think I'm a crazy football fan. The reality is I'm not. I don't watch a lot of football on TV. I don't know who's playing quarterback for whom. I know what my guys are doing, and I know what our opponents are doing. But during the season, if I'm looking at 30 hours worth of tape a week, I don't want to 
go home and watch a football game. But I do love the strategy behind the game. It's like advanced master's chess, but with 22 live human beings as pieces moving at once with a lot at stake. That really stimulates me intellectually. Then the other piece of the program, you know, you got to be able to put together a program. Well, I know I could do that. I've been doing that you know, big, big, big portion of my, my life. And then the last one, though, was at a time in my life where I could do anything I wanted to. I go back to the same reason why I decided I want to coach when I was a senior in college. I didn't think I could do something. To, I don't mean BAM now, just boy, boys becoming men where I could really help them make a difference in their lives. I didn't think there was anything that I could get greater satisfaction at at that point in my life than doing that. And there's one thing I probably left out. Maybe it's a little bit of unfinished business for my first time around. I believed I would be a great bet for somebody. But I wanted to be a Division One. I. I wanted it to matter. But it never happened before. And there were so many times in the business world where we were successful. We, we, we got greater market share. Or we pulled away from our competition because we had thought things through and we did things in a way other people weren't doing them. And I go, someone's going to take a shot at me, especially a program that's not doing well. Okay. <laughs> so... Remember, it was the Yale alumni, and when I came back, I said, I love that interview. And I had tremendous support from Charlie and people like Charlie at Yale. These are monster people, but the AD wouldn't give me an interview. And he was honest, though, and we talked on the telephone. He said, look, I know a lot of people like you, and if you come in, though, you go through an interview because everything's committees, there's a good chance you're going to be one of the like, last couple finalists, and then you're going to go in front of the president, and then I lose control over it. We're Yale. I can't let a guy that has a coach for 20-something years come in here as head coach. So I'm going to control it by not letting you come in. I said, well, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate all those things, but you know, Yale wasn't doing particularly good. <laughs> you know, but, so, but it was like, we're Yale, so how can we possibly consider somebody like you? And you're listening to Joe Moglia. And what a story, folks. I mean, from the mean streets of New York, and I mean tough neighborhoods that he hung out in, some tough characters he hung around, and to being in Merrill Lynch's MBA program, with 26 smart alecks and brainiacs from the best graduate schools and colleges in the country. And what do you know, he becomes the number one salesman and then says, I think I want to coach again. After all that success, I think I want to coach again. When we come back, we find out what happened to Joe, what happened at Yale. The story continues. Joe Moglia's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories in the final portion of Joe Moglia's remarkable story. Let's pick up where we last left off. It was like everybody had, we're either so good, we don't need you. Or we have such a great name, even though our program stinks, we don't need you. Or we're so bad, we can't afford to make a mistake. And at the end of the day, it's too much risk. Now, I think if any of them sat down and really thought through, what are the skills, go back to the spirit of sounds exercise, go back to what Charlie did. What are the skill sets a head college coach supposed to have? What skill sets does this guy have? How does that compare to the skills that some of the other people have? And remember, back, and people say, oh, we want the CEO type of head coach. But 
I can't even consider this guy. I can't even talk to him. So that's kind of what was happening. So the issue was people really not, not taking the time to do an honest to God risk reward analysis because if they did, more people would have been want to interview me and I probably would have more people really willing to give me the job. But no one did. Not a single Division I school would take a chance on him as a head coach. So this former CEO of a billion-dollar company decided to intern at Nebraska for free. Well, at the end of the day, remember, a leader is about others anyway. So there is there's a humble characteristic associated with that. And I recognize that if I'm going to begin, I recognize I'm going to begin at the bottom. But I was working full-time with those guys when they were working full-time. And Lincoln, Nebraska, where the university is, is about an hour from Omaha. So three nights a week, I stayed in the hotel room. You know, I didn't come home because we were working like 14, 15 hours, and I didn't want to be driving an hour in the morning or an hour at night when I was exhausted and it was midnight. But I knew that was the role. So at the end of my first year at Nebraska, I think I got an interview or two, but most of the time I couldn't even get an interview. I did get in front of one college president, and they had a coach, but this was just going to be a contact. And I had a good session with the guy, and the guy said, you know, Joe, I could never hire you here. And I go, well, why not? He goes, well, because, you know, the, the emphasis on the, you know, the NCAA regulations and all the different things. And, you know, I couldn't risk that, you know, I couldn't risk you not being on top of that. I go, NCAA regulations. I, in effect, report to the Securities Exchange Commission. If you screw up as a football coach, you may give up some scholarships. If I screw up the Securities Exchange Commission, I'm going to jail. I'm losing my job. I think if I could handle that, I could certainly handle the NCAA rules. And he literally was saying, no, no, I couldn't take that risk. I said, you couldn't take a risk. Stuff like that, you know, so they would become frustrating, but they're also part of the reasons why I've been reasonably successful because those are the people you compete against most of the time. I said, okay, I don't want to spend the rest of my life. There are a lot of things I could do. I don't spend the rest of my life trying to do this, but I'm going to give it another year. And after another year, Joe tried to land a head coaching job again, and again, he came away empty handed. And he couldn't bring himself to intern for a third season. So two months into the 2010 football season, he's watching it all on television. Until the UFL, a startup league designed to capitalize on big football areas without professional teams, called to see if Joe would coach the hometown team, the Omaha Nighthawks. And that led to the Division I phone call he'd been fighting for. And it was from the president of Coastal Carolina. The phone call that I got from uh, Dave Desenzo. Dave actually said to me, he says, Joe, I've been following your career. I know everything there is to know about you. He goes, I knew we needed to be able to make a change in our program. I can't see how we can miss with you. He said, but the typical college president is not going to hire you. He said, but somebody will. Somebody will get it. Somebody will understand it. Somebody, and before anybody does, I want you to be our guy. And that's how that happened at Coastal. And I came in, people did not do their homework. And they said, Who's this guy? This is some business guy that never coached before that comes in and wants to, you know, coach a team. He probably bought his way into the program. Uh, if you read the article, I think it was written by Joe Wertheim when he was at Nebraska, talked about a billion-dollar coach. It didn't mean I was worth a billion dollars, but I take it a firm is going out of business, and we started to earn a billion dollars. You had to read the article to get that. But people look at me up, they see billion-dollar coach, they say, this is some billionaire coming in here. He got death threats. He got death threats. For me coming in, and I remember telling him, I said, I recognize you're standing behind me. I'm not going to let you down. But for any reason, any reason, you don't like the way I comb my hair. You think I'm not the right guy for you going forward, Dave. You know, I will step down. I will not give you any grief. And he laughed and said, Joe, don't worry about it. If it doesn't work out with you, I'm going to get fired before you do. 
but it worked out great. Joe was the head coach at Coastal Carolina for six seasons, compiling a record of 55 wins and 22 losses. But even more important to him than their success on the field was their success off of it that was helped by his program called Life After Football. I, I think we got to get out. We have to have our priorities straight. You know, there are plenty of stats out there that in basketball and football, like uh, uh, something like two out of three or three out of four players that five years after they retire, they're broke. So you can even get to the major leagues or to the NFL and have a wonderful career, but it's not about what you're doing playing football. It's about what you wind up doing with your life. So you need to be able to understand that. And very few people are going to get to the NFL anyway. So when football comes to an end, it could be at high school, could be during college because you got injured, could be at the end of college, or maybe you're fortunate to have a professional career. But it comes to an end. And uh, do you have a foundation upon which to build your life later on? You know, what kind of father are you going to be? What kind of husband are you going to be? What kind of, what, what kind of career path are you going to have? You're going from an NFL career, potentially, or a good college career, to like uh, some, some sort of career path that you don't enjoy, that maybe you really weren't cut out for. You're not going to be happy long term. You're not going to be happy down the road. So, uh, again, I, I said earlier that when I think about myself, or I think about my loved ones, I think about the people on my team, the people I'm responsible for, the people I've worked with, at the end of the day, all I really, really want is for them to be happy. So somebody doesn't have to be a nuclear physicist. You can have a lot of different types of jobs as long as at the end of the day you feel good about who you are. Every coach in the country will say, well, part of our job is certainly to lay a foundation upon which our kids are going to live their life later on, you know, after football. Well, everybody says that, but what does the coach actually do himself to reinforce that commitment? Everybody's got organizations on campus that they can go to. They bring in speakers. They do all that. But what does the football staff do? Well, what we did, we gave up 30 minutes of practice a week. Now, I'm going to repeat that. Gave up 30 minutes of practice every week. Nobody in the country gives up practice every week to emphasize this. But that also emphasized to my coaches and my players how important that concept was. So what are some of the things we would have talked about? Kathy and I always needed to have a budget because we didn't have any money. And the big thing in the, the, the budget, the budget's not meant to tell you like, what you're supposed to do, but so at least you know what you're doing. So if you're spending a whole lot of money on gasoline, at least you know you're spending money on gasoline. And is that what you choose to do? Okay, because that's your responsibility. But when you don't have it, you also got to be able to make sure you're allocating in the right way. And there were many times where, especially like I mentioned the wintertime in the oil bill, because it would get high in the oil bill, and that would throw a monkey wrench into our expenses. So we would have to decide, like, month to month, which bills we would pay. Now, the problem with Kathy is, it wasn't Kathy didn't spend money on herself, but, like, for example, when it came to Christmas time, she would go crazy spending money. Uh, we didn't have that money. So, like, that would just put us in a hole. And so we had a budget that we tried to stick by, but it wasn't an easy thing to do. And I always felt, you know, I was in debt. I always felt I was in hock. I always felt I was behind the eight ball, et cetera. But I felt we had to have a budget. So at least, so when I got in trouble, meaning I, I got into $1,000 worth of debt because we spent too much at Christmas time, at least I knew it was $1,000 worth of debt. But when I started to make money, that was just something that I thought was critically important. Again, it just, don't I have to take care of it? Uh, I'm just not going to throw money around. I've never, never done that. So where am I going to use my money? How am I going to how am I going to allocate it? And I've told that to my players. I've told that to my friends. I've told that to my kids. You know why that's important. And frankly, and I tell them, I said I did it when I had no money at all, and I've I've done it 
when I've had money. I said, if you have money, you got to still you got to know what you're doing with it. And those life after football sessions, helping our guys understand what taxes are. You know, so if you make forty thousand dollars, you don't get to take home forty thousand dollars, but in your head you think you do. So if you make forty thousand, uh, one of my players, let's say, winds up getting uh, uh, drafted, right, and he gets a two million dollar bonus. Well, he thinks he's got two million dollars, but you really have about a million dollars after tax. So if he spends a million five, because he knows you're supposed to save, he thinks he's saving five hundred five hundred grand. The reality is he's in the hole for five hundred grand. I think that's one of the biggest issues that happens with some of the professional players. They'd also talk about current events, the biggest threats facing our country, and voting. In 150 years of college football, with the possible exception of the service academies, 150 years of college football, the only program in 150 years, any level, whose entire team voted for the presidential election in November 2016 was Coastal Carolina. Now, that's something I'm incredibly proud of, and I believe my guys are very, very proud of. On my tombstone, I wouldn't mind if it said the guy had an impact on others. So I find coaching and I find leadership in the business world or or in coaching just incredibly rewarding. And I'm not sure I could have done other things with my career that would have been that rewarding to me. Playing and being a producer was more fun, but being a coach and being a business leader was far more satisfying and rewarding. And you've been listening to the voice of Joe Moglia, his story and what a story it is. His early coaching years, then to Wall Street, where he rose to prominence as a salesman at one big company, Merrill Lynch, then CEO of Ameritrade, and he saved that company from bankruptcy. And of course, his return to coaching, interning, interning at the University of Nebraska, and for free, because that's how much he wanted to get back into the game Finally getting hired by Coastal Carolina, the president said, I can't see how I can miss with you. I can't see either. And my goodness, that he knows the difference between having fun and having an impact and the difference. We all hit that part of our life where we're looking for that significance and that impact. The guy had an impact on others, he said he'd like to see on his tombstone. There aren't better words to be on a tombstone. Joe Mowgli's story here on Our American Stories.